Uh, so honored, so blessed to be here. And for me, you know, this is family. And because I'm literally coming in and out so quickly, and the reason I am, by the way, is we have two live sites this week in World Mandate. We have San Diego, California, and we have Waco, Texas, and then we have 11 stream sites around the country, from Boston to Raleigh to Chicago. We've got stuff happening in every direction this weekend, and Francis Chan just kicked off tonight. It's already ended in Waco, and uh, we're just getting started here. I'm going to take the red eye, get back in the morning. We're going to have a great day tomorrow, and I'll be cheering you guys on here uh, as well. So, because I don't get to see everybody, I got to do a couple of shout outs. My niece, Stephanie Seibert. Where's Stephanie? I just got to hug her. Big hug. My daughter and son in law, and my new grandson, Abby and Kyle Van Hecke, my grandson, Miles. Big hug wherever you guys are. All the Antioch pastors and friends, hug yourself. All right, we're good. Love everybody, really. Um, for those that I, I, I don't know, just a, a little bit about myself. Um, for me, I've always been a dreamer. Uh, I remember as a kid, I don't know how many times at eight years old, dropping back, throwing the Super Bowl touchdown pass, and the whole crowd erupting. Did that several times. I went to the moon as an astronaut a few times in my head. Uh, I was the president of the United States when it was a popular thing to be that back then. But uh, whatever it was, I had big dreams, and I would try to live those out in my mind, hoping one day to do something great or be somebody great. And then I ran into Jesus, <laughs> the greatest, right? There's nothing else. And when I met Jesus, I thought, I'm done with my dreams. Jesus, you're so wonderful. You're the hero. You're the new hero. If, if I could just be with you and, and do something that you're dreaming about, Lord, count me in. Whatever it is, wherever it is, whenever it is, I want to be with you, Jesus, because you truly are the answer to our dreams. And you have dreams in your heart that have not been touched, and I want to dream one of those dreams. Well, as we kind of started off in the journey, we uh, started out with a little missions training school. We started planting churches in Siberia. People like Jeff and Sarah Bianchi jumped in and Kelly and Jennifer Braswell in the early 90s. And uh, we just began to journey together as friends, marvelous comrades. And then along the way, we ran into uh, people like Robert and Stephanie Herbert. And uh, Stephanie had come through uh, our college group and was living with us. And then Robert was kind of this newbie guy that uh, showed up, and he started hanging out at our house a little bit. And I thought he was just hanging out because he just wanted to spend time with my kids because he would help Stephanie babysit. But, of course, it turned into more than that. And we have a, another picture, I believe. Let's get that one. That's my favorite. Look at that head of hair on that dude. Would you look at that? I mean, he could have grown it out like here or down to his waist. Amazing days. All right. They fell in love and became a part of those marvelous comrades, as many of you guys uh, are in this room. And out of that group, we just began to say, Jesus, we want you to be the hero, and we want to we live out the book of Acts. We want to be a people after your own heart, and we want to we change the world. And so from planting churches to uh, making, uh, going into our cities and asking God what to do and how do we help people and, and all of that, we kind of fast forward to today. 
And today we have about uh, 100 works in 42 different nations where people are planting churches, rescuing slaves, changing lives, and thousands upon thousands of people are being reached. But you know, that's a, that's a cool deal going on, but there's more. There's more for us. We're just actually getting started. And uh, uh, on January, I kind of gave a word to our church and a word to our whole movement for 2017, and that was uh, the word, Lord, teach us, or Jesus, teach us how to pray again. If we've never prayed, Lord, teach us to pray for the first time. If, if we have prayed before, Lord, would you teach us how to pray again? Because the move of God that he's wanting to do in this hour will be preceded and sustained by people who pray. And God's inviting us in as a people to pray, and my belief is you'll come out of this weekend more of a praying person than you came in. But I found myself also publicly saying for the first time something that God had put in my heart many years ago, and I, I told everybody this, and I said, and I feel like God has said we're to reach a billion people through the Antioch movement. A billion people. And everybody was like, whoa, and I, get, I said, I know, I'm sorry, I know there's seven and a half billion. I, I just felt like we should take one of them and leave some rest for the others. And, um, but that's not as opposed to, that's through partnerships and friendships and, and networking and all the good things that God's called us. Lord, would you let us touch a billion of people and especially those who've never heard. Now, I got confirmation three days later in a very unique way. I got um, this invitation from a guy who used to be uh, one of our uh, state senators, and uh, he's from Waco, and the invitation says something like this. This is going to be the most cryptic invitation you get in 2017. Already I'm interested. And he said, um, there is a very prominent businessman in America that's going to be coming through Waco, and what he wants to do is meet with spiritual leaders from Waco. He's, he's committed to going around the states this year and learning from people. He's not political. He's not from Texas. He doesn't want anything. He just wants to talk to you guys, and I've invited 15 others. So if you can make it Wednesday at 4 o'clock. So we all show up, me and some buddies, uh, other pastors in town, and we're just sitting around having coffee. They said, so sorry, they're going to be 15 minutes late. And, and we're thinking, now listen, somebody that wants to meet spiritual leaders. So you're thinking, who are the Christian business guys? And the other thing they said is everybody knows who he is. We're thinking, well, let's see, maybe it's like Dan Cathy of Chick-fil-A. Or if you guys know Hobby Lobby, maybe it's one of the Green Brothers of Hobby Lobby. And we're kind of we're thinking it through. And then all of a sudden, in the door walks about five or six 30-something-year-old folks and just dressed like everybody in this room. And the guy walks over, and he said, uh, hey, thank you so much for coming. I'm Mark. Looking forward to spending some time with you guys. Now, I, I didn't actually know who the guy was. So he, he goes to the next guy. He said, hey, I'm Mark. And all of a sudden, I realized it's Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg has come to Waco, Texas, that's the proof, right? <laughs> to Waco, Texas, and he sat down for an hour and a half and asked us questions about spirituality, about community, about how do you see the millennial generation different from the other generations? What do you think's going on out there? An hour and a half, is that amazing? But here was the deal, after talking with us and asking us questions and facilitating conversation, at the end, we said, well, hey, we want to hear from you. What do you think the answer to those questions are? And he had some cool stories about building community through Facebook and neat things that happened. 
But here's what he said. He said uh, there's 1.8 billion people on Facebook. 1.8 billion. He said every day 1 billion of them are online. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm thinking, this 32-year-old young kid from New York, if he can reach a billion people, we can reach a billion people. That was my exact thought. I thought, surely the people of God and my friends, I mean, this guy, you know, surely we can do this. So my faith was built. That's my confirmation from Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, He's got a word for us that we can reach a billion people for Jesus. (laughs) All right. Well, hey, let's jump in. I want to pray and jump into the message tonight. Lord, we love you. Thank you that you have spoken a word that you're going to teach us again how to pray. Lord, thank you that you're going to empower us again to reach those who've never heard, to reach a billion people, even through the friends and extended relationships through this room. And Lord, we pray tonight, would you deposit something by the Holy Spirit into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, however many people are here, 14, 1,500, Lord, would you give a word to every person. May everyone hear your voice, hear your heart as we journey together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things when I uh, felt that, or realized that God had really called us to plant churches, that the way we were, best way we were going to uh, impact the world around us was to plant churches, um, I began to study the life of Paul. I spent a year just reading everything Paul wrote in the New Testament and asking this question, what makes this guy tick? What are his values? What are his methods? What's his mission? What's he all about? If, if he's the guy that God raised up to write most of the New Testament and to be the person that we were to model our lives after, besides Jesus, of course, then, then there's something about him, something that he has that I need to have. And so I'm going to unpack a few of those truths for you here tonight and really unpack Paul's initial encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. But before we get there, I want to go out about 30,000 feet, tell you the story of world history in three minutes, and get down to Paul. All right, we're ready? We're all born in the image of God. Nobody in this room is here by mistake. You're born because you are wanted. You were created in your mother's womb by the hand of God, and you live today by the breath of God. That is the gospel. Adam and Eve were created by God. They loved God. They walked and talked with God unhindered, open. They had purpose. They had identity. They had clarity. They knew everything and all was right, and they were with the Lord. But God spoke to them, it's all yours except this particular tree, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Satan comes and tempted them and asked this question, has God really said? Do you know that whenever that thought comes into your mind, has God really said, is God really good? Does God really have my best in mind? Can, you, can I tell you right now, that is the devil speaking again. Because if he can question the character and the nature and the desire of God, then we begin to go down the slippery slope of destruction. So they went for it. They went their own way. They took of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and all of a sudden, they, sin came into the world, and they were blinded from the goodness of God. God did not change. Man changed by his choices to turn from God and to live for self instead of him. And so we see, though, out of God's mercy, the rest of the Old Testament, him reaching out uh, to a people called Israel. And he actually calls Israel to himself, and he says this. He says, you will be my people, and my glory will now be displayed through you. 
And by his grace, he would shower them with favor and with love, and he would raise up leaders for them and the whole deal. But like all of us, they kept drifting over and over and over again. Now listen, I want to make sure you hear this. In the old covenant, the way that the earth would see God would be through the people Israel. And everything in life, God told them how to do everything. He told them how to eat, how to walk, how to talk, how to have relationships, how to do business, how to do government, everything. And the reason was because apart from God, God, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and so in the Old Testament, we see the glory of God through a people of Israel, but they couldn't get it together, and mainly because they were relying on prophets, priests, and kings, and they didn't own their relationship with the Lord themselves. Do you know, whenever you live through a relationship of somebody else other than God himself, you will never be able to live out God's purpose and plan for your life. So we, we fast forward, and Jesus comes, right? Rescues us from this toil and this striving of trying to be okay with God, trying to figure out our purpose and destiny, Jesus comes and he says this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is awesome. You're walking the wrong way. Come to me for my rule and reign is upon you. The definition of the kingdom of God is wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. And wherever the king is not, there is not the rule and reign of Jesus. And wherever Jesus is ruling and reigning, all things are right. And wherever Jesus is not ruling and reigning, things are wrong. Pretty simple, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. So Jesus then begins to model the kingdom to his disciples. And he lands in this particular uh, place where he's with his guys. And he's saying to them, hey, who do people say that I am? And one of the guys says, well, some people say you're John the Baptist resurrected. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet Jeremiah, the power, the authority. And then Jesus asked the question that every one of us in this room have to answer tonight and every day of our lives. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what everybody else says. Who do you say that I am? Every person sounding my voice, you have to answer that question because that will determine the destiny of your life. So Peter jumps out and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, uh, you know, um, said back to Peter, Peter, that is awesome. That was taught to you of the spirit of God. And he said, Peter, upon that rock of revelation that I am the son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what he said is, basically, Peter, you get this thing down. You get me as Lord. You get an understanding of who I am, that I am the, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you'll be able to build on that the rest of your life, and I'll gather a people together who cannot be stopped on the planet because they will be the carriers of my truth forever and ever. We'd go through the sacrifice of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then Jesus appearing over 40 days to over 500 people preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then out of that 500, 120 of them gather in Acts 1. And Jesus is kind of giving his final words to them. And they're asking this question. They're asking, hey, when's the end going to come? You know, Jesus, you said that the end would come. When's it going to come? Tell us about the end times. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know times or epics, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He ascends to heaven right before them, and they're like, whoa, right? And they're to wait for the promise of the Spirit. Now listen, I want you to get this. In that room of 120, there's carpenters, there's doctors, there's housewives, there's construction workers, there's every 
sphere of society. They're just good folks. They're just the people of the city. They're there, but that what makes them different is they're waiting for the promise. What makes them different is they're willing to live or die believing in Jesus. And so because they have lives of sacrifice in the midst of their everyday lives, the Spirit of God falls on them. And, and then Peter jumps up and said, this is that which Joel prophesied hundreds of years before, that the Spirit of God will be poured on all flesh. And here it is, the Spirit's being poured out, and these people are just going wild. They are lit up with God. The Spirit of God's on them. And then they begin to gather house to house, and it said 3,000 of them overnight give their hearts to Jesus, 3,000 people are saved and transformed by this message of the gospel. This 3,000 eventually would turn into 5,000, and those who are wondering, we're about to get to Paul, all right? 3,000 turns into 5,000, and the way this thing's multiplying is people are going to work and talking about Jesus. They're going, carpenters are in the carpenter shop. They're at the blacksmith shop. They're talking about Jesus. They're living godly lives. They're living differently than the world. What's that on you? Why are you different? What's going on with you? How are you treating your wife better? How are you treating your kids better? What's happening? They're seeing the life of Jesus being made manifest in the common man, and that's what is drawing the common people. It is never just the, the one hero or the full-time vocational dude or whatever. It is everybody living on mission with Jesus that allows the city to rejoice and to be reached. So we got the 3,000. We got the, the 5,000. Now remember Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? They're only reaching Jerusalem. I mean, we're a few years into this, and they're just reaching Jerusalem. And so a persecution arises. Now, whether it was God allowed or whether it was the devil or whatever, it happened, right? And this persecution arose, and it really kind of highlighted around this dude named Stephen. And Stephen was what, a deacon. He was just a, a guy probably, let's just say he was a blacksmith in the community. He served everybody. He wasn't one of the big apostles, but it said he moved in signs and wonders in the power of God. And when they looked on him, when they accused him and brought him in before the authorities, it said they looked on him and they saw him as the face of an angel. This guy was lit up with Jesus. <laughs> and it wasn't because he was in a full-time pastor. This guy was just a guy in the community lit up by Jesus. He gets brought before the authorities. The whole deal goes down. He stands up, boldly proclaims Jesus, and then he tells them at the end of this long history lesson that he gives all the, uh, the Jewish leaders, he says, and I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Whoa, he's seeing an open heaven vision, and they are freaking out. These, these uh, religious guys that hate Jesus, they are freaking out. They go, they drag him out, they start stoning him, and it said that Stephen said the same thing that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And it says he fell asleep. Isn't that great? He fell asleep and woke up in the presence of the Lord. All right, this is all leading up to Paul, all right? We got world history cranking now. Persecution happens, and it said people scattered to Judea and Samaria. That's one way to get everybody going in the right direction, right? Little persecution happens, and now they start fulfilling the mission of Jesus. And as these people scattered and ran for their lives, they took with them what they had learned in Jerusalem when living house to house in the presence of Jesus, and they began to plant churches in Judea and Samaria. And it says in Acts 8, there was a man named Saul, who would later be called Paul, who was watching the stoning of Stephen, agreeing with it, and then he went out and began to ravage the people of God leading the persecution. 
So here we go. We got this Jewish radical zealot guy, Saul, who would eventually be called Paul, who's not only um, not following Jesus, but he is trying to eradicate the way, the people of God. But God, out of his mercy, no matter what direction you're going in, no matter how bad you are, and Paul was one bad dude as far as I'm concerned when it comes to the life of Jesus, God is willing to reach out to you. And he not only reaches out to Paul, but he blows him out, not just reaches out. So here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him into the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, those are the followers of Jesus, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus speaking. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it'll be told to you what you must do. So here we go. Paul will recount this two other times as he's standing before kings and rulers, and we're going to visit some of those other passages, but we're going to break this down now. Hang with me. All right, so here it is. He has this incredible light that comes, this bright light that blinds him. And what's interesting is in other versions where Paul retells the story, there's over seven times he talks about brightness or light or glory. And you got to remember, Paul knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. In, in Acts 26, when he's recounting this story, he said, the voice out of heaven spoke to me, Jesus, in the Hebrew dialect. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So why is that a big deal? Because you remember, Paul, Paul was a radical a Jewish follower, a follower of, of, of Jewish tradition. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And so as soon as he had this theophany, he was thinking Moses met with God. Isaiah met with God. Daniel met with God. Oh my, what is going on? Is this, and he literally he says back, Yahweh, Lord, Jehovah, Old Testament, who, who, who are you? He's undone. He, he's having this dialogue, and, and he's only Old Testament deals. Uh, Paul was something like this. Like for me, I grew up in the 70s. You get two words of any song from the 70s, and I can give you the rest of the song, right? Paul was the same way. Any experience from the Old Testament, man, he just knew what was going down. This is a meeting with Almighty God. This is a meeting with Jehovah. Who are you? How are you going to say who you are? Who are you, how are you expressing yourself? He has this encounter And here's the response, I am Jesus. Wow. (laughs) Who who are you, Lord? What's the way? What's the answer to life? I am Jesus. That is the most powerful thing said in all the universe to this point. I am he. I am Jesus. Jesus, the power of that name shatters and breaks shackles and delivers men. The name of Jesus stands alone. It's the name above every name. And every uh, knee shall bow and tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So he has this encounter and he says, I am Jesus. Now, a lot of you guys have heard stories that are happening all over the world especially in the Muslim world, 
where people are having dreams of Jesus. Sometimes in the dream, he tells them who he is, and sometimes he doesn't. Actually, my experience has been most of the time he doesn't because he's waiting for us to come and tell them who he is. We, had, we have uh, been working among refugees, as many of you and some of you in this room were a part of that this summer. We've continued to work there. Our team in Greece over the holidays was going throughout the, the refugee camps, once again talking to them. And you know what the story that they mainly use in refugee camps is the story of Lazarus. The story of Jesus speaking hope and resurrection in the midst of hopelessness. I love what one of the uh, group of the refugees said to my son recently, uh, who's working in Greece. They said, all, all these other agencies, they bring all kinds of help and aid and everything else, but you bring us hope. That's different from food and clothing and blankets. You bring us hope. And the hope has a name and his name is Jesus. All right, so there. So they were in the tent the other day, and this, this guy said, hey, I want to bring a friend, a friend of mine to you. He keeps having this dream of a man in white with flowing locks of hair, and he is beautiful and perfect and holy, and he's bright, and they don't know what to do. One of our gals that was there was, is a freshman at Baylor. She's from Egypt. They went and got Doreen. She went and talked to him more in depth and said, what's going on? You know, Tell me a little bit more. And he tells the story, and instead of telling him who, who Jesus is, they read Revelation 1, the revealing of Jesus, the, the, the hair white like wool, the white clothes, the eyes of fire, and he's reading and tears welling up, and he said, that's him, that's him. The quote is, I'm a million percent convinced that that is him. <laughs> it's easy to lead somebody to Jesus in that setting, Right? They lead him to Jesus, very genuine. They begin a discovery Bible study. They're visiting him. He's telling others about Jesus. He met the Lord just like Paul did. This is not just some Bible story. That's happened last week. It's happening all over the world. But the uniqueness of it is, is that many times, unless somebody shows them who Jesus is, they don't have the consummation of their dream. They just have the dream but no reality to it. All right, so here it is. Paul having this encounter with God. And let me just say it this way. God wants you to have an encounter with him as well. In John 14, 6, a very common passage often used trying to describe Jesus. Jesus said to his followers, don't be troubled, don't be fearful, don't, don't worry about when you die. I got a place for you. And he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am Jesus. Okay, so here we go, real quick. Jesus is the way. He's the way out of guilt and shame. He's the bearer of our sin. He's the burden bearer. He's the only way out, actually, of guilt and shame. He's the way out of guilt and shame. He's the way out of addiction and brokenness. It says that no temptation has overtaken us, but it is common to man, but God will plan a way of escape. Do you know whatever addiction you're in, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has planned a way of escape? He's saying, I got a way of escape, man. Just look my way. Come on. Let me be Jesus. <laughs> Let me be who I am by the Holy Spirit, and I will get you out of this because I got a way of escape planned. Isn't that great? Jesus is the way of escape. Jesus is the way of to the Father. 
He's the way to the Father. One thing I know about everybody in this room, all of us want to know that the Father loves us. Whether you've had a great father or not so great or even never a father, I promise you the Father in heaven has arms wide open, and because of Jesus, you can be his son and his daughter forever. You can be holy and completely is. And he is the only way to salvation. Now, all millennial friends out here, I want you to hear me, okay? He is the only way to salvation because he's the only sacrifice. He's the only one that became a sacrifice on our behalf. He's the only one that made a way to the Father. There is no other way other than Jesus for salvation and to the Father. Let me just say it this way. If if you think Islam is the way, then when do your good works outweigh your bad works? When do you do enough to be received into paradise? You never know. Any Muslim I've ever asked, how do you know if you're going to heaven? There's certain things they might say here and there. But at the end of this, I said, do you know for sure? No, I don't know for sure because I don't know if my good is going to outweigh my bad. Man, when you talk to Muslims and you talk about a genuine love and you uh, are able to clarify who Jesus is and that there is a way to absolutely know you're forgiven and that it's not you grappling your way to God, but God has come to you and become a sacrifice so that you can be free, I'm telling you, it blows their mind. Islam does not get you to heaven. Jesus does. You say, well, I, I got Buddhist friends, and they're really nice people. Absolutely. There's a lot of not really nice Buddhists. <laughs> and that's, so we're not saying they're not nice people, or they don't contribute to society, or this, that, or the other. But Buddhism will never get you to the Father. It's, a, it's that higher consciousness. If I can just get to a higher level of consciousness and get free from the world and self and suffering and meditate long enough, I'll get to a place of freedom only Jesus gets you to freedom. I was with this guy. He's a, a medical doctor. I was sitting next to him on a plane. He had the whole Buddhist garb on. We were coming out of uh, 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 Nepal area, whatever. And so I asked him, I said, so where are you from? I'm from South Carolina. I'm a doctor. I said, what's with all the Buddhist garb, man? And he said, uh, he said I, I've, I've become a Buddhist. And I said, oh, really? I said, well, how's that working for you? He said, well, I'm trying, man. I mean, I almost got to nirvana. You know, I almost got to that place, you know. He said, I've been studying under a guy. And I said, well, tell me a little of your background. Do you have any faith background? And he said, well, yeah, I used to be a Christian. And he said, but I took Christianity as far as it could go. And he said, and that's why I picked up Buddhism. I actually laughed out loud. I said, really? I said, you didn't take it far enough, man. I said, Jesus has blown out the barrier between God and man and we can step into the presence of the living God and have a relationship with him by the Holy Spirit right now. Somebody lied to you, brother. This Christianity that you got was sold wrong. He was a little shocked, you know. I mean, I was shocked at how bold I was being. I was just a little overwhelmed that he would try to tell me that Buddhism was better than the presence of the living God through the blood of Jesus. It's a little uncomfortable flight for the next 13 hours, but we were fine. <laughs> a few years ago, I uh, got stuck at a regional airport, and uh, we were going to have to go to, the, to Houston a couple hours away if we were going to catch our plane. And, I'm, and I'm, there was only one rental car left, and there was a, a, an Indian businessman. Um, and so I said, hey, man, I got a car. Come on, jump in with me. Let's just go over to Houston together. 
So he and I are driving together and trying to catch this flight. And, of course, I ask his story and his history, and he's telling me, you know, about all this stuff. And I said, well, hey, tell me about Hinduism. I mean, just act like I don't know anything. Just talk to me, you know. Tell, tell me about it. So he tells me about it and so on and so forth. And, and, I, and I ask him this question. I said, hey, which God in Hinduism is the God of forgiveness? Which one? He said, well, this, this one will do a little bit over here. This do a little bit over there. I said, no, no, which God allows you to come and bring your sins and you're done? And I said, because we're all guilty, man. I said, if I didn't have a God of forgiveness, I'd be really bummed. <laughs> I said, we all need to have that guilt and shame lifted, don't we? And we get to talking, and he realized he doesn't have a God of forgiveness. And so I get to talk to him about Jesus, that Jesus is the way to forgiveness. His sacrifice on the cross was enough, complete, forever and ever. Don't just add him to your God pool of your million gods, bro. Make him Lord of all. We had a great, powerful prayer time because the forgiveness and the love of Jesus visited us in that car. He is the way, and there is no other way. And the most loving thing you do is you communicate the way in a loving and caring way, understanding everybody's background and culture. You become friends with people. You care for them. You're honest with them. But to be ashamed of Jesus or to question whether he is the way is the most unloving thing you can do to anybody. He's the only one that can rescue them from death and hell. So let's be rescuers. He's the way. This is going to be one long sermon if I don't get going here, right? Uh, (laughs) Y'all hanging? All right. He's the way. He's the truth. Oh, man. All right, okay. Jesus said, (laughs) you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Golly. Okay. Um, You guys, we are in a place right now in our culture where we are letting everybody's truth be the truth. And can I just say it doesn't work. (laughs) Jesus is the truth. His life is his lifestyle, his teachings, the, the scriptures uh, God breathed, this is our truth. And you say, well, it's unloving if you challenge somebody, uh, whether it's their, their sexual issues or whether it's their uh, uh, ethical issues or their business or whatever. You say, well, that's not loving. Man, nothing can be further from the truth. The most loving thing that a parent does is tell his kids right and wrong so they can be rescued from destruction. So if I love somebody, I tell them the truth. And you say, well, they didn't like what you said. Well, I can't be in charge of whether they liked it or not. It's just the truth, and I want to love them, and I care enough about them to tell them the truth. All right, we don't have time for this seminar. All right, way, (laughs) truth. He's the life. He's the life. He's the life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. (laughs) He is life. When you are looking for life and everything else, I promise you, as the old country and western song, looking for love in all the wrong places. You go looking for love everywhere else, but Jesus, you ain't going to find it. And when you find it, if you think you got it, it's going to be gone because it's not solid unless it's based in and on Jesus. Jesus is the life. He's the life. And when we come to that place where we believe that he is the life, then he begins to be reflected in our lives. I love that God came with light. And the reason God came with light, because he calls us to be the light of the world. And when we allow the light of Jesus to be a reflection on us, then the light of Jesus flows through us without even trying. 
Paul would say 20 years later in 2 Corinthians 3, he would say this. He'd say, Moses had a glory on him when he'd come off the mountain, so much so that he had to put a veil over his face to not blow everybody out away because he had met with God. And he said, if that under the old covenant was glorious, how much more us under the new covenant standing before the living God reflect the glory of God in the face of Christ? 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 the Lord is the Spirit, where the, uh, and where the uh, Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. Never look at me, just smile. Come on, smile. It's okay. It's not going to hurt you. It, it, there's a little bit of glory coming out every time you smile. Now, when I look at Jesus and I, I behold him and I honor him and I exalt him, and I worry, there's something of his glory that gets reflected on me. And then the hope is that, that then it reflects out, right? That's the way this deal is supposed to work. And what happens is every once in a while, somebody actually believes this stuff and people see Jesus. We've worked in Afghanistan since 1995. And, um, but like in every situation, there have been men and women who've gone before us. We just stand on the shoulders of other people. And there was this man named Christy Wilson, actually became a doctor, Dr. Christy Wilson. And here's his story. He grew up as a missionary kid in Iran in the 1920s and 30s. And his dad, uh, uh, Iran at that time, was very open. It was uh, open to Westerners. And, and his dad was a missionary. They were trying to reach people for Jesus. But his dad had a heart for Afghanistan. And his dad would take him to the river as a little boy and look over to Afghanistan. And he said, son, there's 25 million Afghans and there's no one who knows Jesus. He said, they won't let us in, but we can pray and make sure that God's in there. And we're going to keep praying. And one day, son, maybe you'll go and be that answer to this people. Well, he goes to university and he's trying to get into Afghanistan. Eventually, he gets in as a teacher. And he would go in and he would love the people and care for the people. He started an eye clinic because they needed it. He started a hospital. He started schools. I mean, he used his vocation for the glory of God. But his main deal was always loving people in the name of Jesus. And even in a radical Muslim culture, he was unashamed of the gospel. But because he loved the people so well, they loved him. And so a friend of mine told me a story about Dr. Wilson that will make the point that I'm trying to make. He said that uh, his friend said uh, in, the, in the 1960s, he was wanting to get into Afghanistan and begin some work there. And they asked him, who's working there? And they said, well, there's a man named Dr. Christy Wilson. He's the guy doing all the good stuff there. And he loves Jesus like crazy. And the guy said, okay, well, where do I find him? He said, well, we don't have a name. We don't have an address. He said, but I hear that if you go into Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, and you ask for the man whose face shines like Jesus they will point you to his house. That's what he had to go on. So the guy gets on the plane. He goes into Kabul, Afghanistan. He's in the arrivals hall. Afghans everywhere. He sees five foreigners over in the corner. And he starts walking over there, and he's going to ask for the man whose face shines like Jesus. He said he walked over there, and before he could get there, he said, there he is. And he walked up, and he said, are you Dr. Christy Wilson? And he said, yes, I am. How can I serve you, my friend? The man whose face shines like Jesus. 
Wow, a life that had encountered Jesus so much so that he reflected the glory of the Lord, so much so that that marked him. Do you know that the New Testament believers that we are to model our lives after, they, were, they looked on them as untrained and uneducated men, but they said they had been with Jesus. There's a glory we haven't tapped into, my friends, that's available by the grace of God. All right, so Paul has this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're going fast forward, all right? Next thing that happens, there's an apostolic encounter. Now we have an apostolic surrender. Here it is, Acts 26. Can you all listen fast? We good? Acts 26, here's what happens, verse 14. And when he had fallen, he's retelling the story, giving us a little more in depth. He said, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's interesting. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I've appeared to you to point you a minister and a witness. So here it is. Don't kick against the goads. The goad would be like a shepherd's staff for an oxen. It's a little bigger pole with more of a metal tip on it like a spear, and they literally would poke the oxen when they would get out of line. When they weren't in the flow, when they weren't obeying their master, this thing would go, and they'd put it on them, and when they would push the wrong way, it literally would draw blood at times because they were that obstinate. And basically saying, Paul, you're like an old ox, and I'm having to to hit you so hard, dude. You're bleeding, man, and this is going to get worse until you stop pushing against me. That's what he's saying. Paul understands this culturally. He understands this as a Jew. So here we go. You're kicking against God. Paul, you need some help. And so at that point, I believe Paul realized this is not a battle I'm going to win. I might as well just surrender now. He surrendered. Can I just say, one of the most glorious things I've ever done in my life is absolutely surrender to Jesus. And whenever I'm kicking against the goads, whenever I'm pushing my own way, the dumbest thing is to keep going there. I just want to always be as surrendered as I can. All right, so here's, here's how, how I say it. I had, uh, several years ago, I had a, a, a gal uh, who's a great leader and uh, very ambitious and, and loves the Lord and all that. And she's in my office, and she's talking about feeling so anxious all the time. Like, is my life going to matter? Am I really going to change the world? Am I going to do something great? Am I going to be somebody great? I want to honor God, and I have all these gifts and talents. And she said, you know how it is, right? You're a leader. You're an ambitious leader. You know how it is. I was probably about 35 at the time, and I, and I had to pause. And I had to be honest, and I said, yeah, I used to know what it was like. I said, but, but not anymore. I said, I resolved that issue. I resolved that, and, and I went back and told her the story that I've told often, and that was at 22 years old. Uh, God had spoken to me to come back to Waco, and I'm spending time seeking God, trying to figure out my future. It's God's kind of challenging me in every area of my life. And I'm, and I'm there one day just pouring my heart out to God, and I'm reading the scriptures, and I'm reading the life of Paul, and where he says uh, uh, that he was the chiefest of sinners. And I'm thinking, because every sin that seemed in my life was coming up, it seemed like I couldn't do anything right. Everything was broken. Every desire it seemed to be wrong. And I remember crying out to God, and I said, no, Paul's not the biggest sinner. I am. <laughs> and I grabbed myself by the shirt. I threw myself on the ground. And I said, God, there's no good in me apart from your grace. And I remember praying this prayer, God, if you can pick me up off this floor and put life into me again, blow me wherever you will, and I'm in. What got crucified that day 
was my own dreams. From that day, from 20 years old, I said, God, people say I'm supposed to be successful. People say I have this gift or that gift. People say I'm supposed to do this, that, and the other. I don't care anymore. I'm yours. And my belief is if I'm wholly yours, then I'm wholly alive. And if I'm wholly yours, it's amazing. You can do above and beyond. I can ask or think. If I am relegated to my own dreams only, that will leave me incomplete in the will of God for my life. I've got to crucify ambition and allow him and come to a place of rest and trust that allows him to be God and not me. And when that happens, then we're ready to go. We're ready to get on with whatever it is. And let me just make sure that you hear me. Some of the greatest world changers in the world are doctors and lawyers and construction workers. This is not saying that I had to be a full-time pastor to, to be a surrendered person. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Luke was a doctor. What are you talking about? Peter was a fisherman. Jesus was a carpenter. Quit getting in your head this sacred secular thing. Blow it out. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm here. Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. And at times, Paul would be a tent maker, literally making tents. He was in full-time business and, and displaying the kingdom of God. And at times, his buddies would free him up so that he didn't have to work in business so he could do the other stuff. But it didn't matter whether he was in business or not. He was the Lord's. This is it. Paul says this in Colossians 3, if then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your affections on the things above and not on the things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. When you're dead to self and alive to God, sin has no power. Sin has power when you're alive, when you're demanding that it meets your needs. But when Jesus is Lord, you're free. There's power. There's power. All right, so we've got apostolic vision of Jesus. We've got apostolic surrender in the life of Paul. And then the last big rock here. We've got an apostolic mission. We have an apostolic mission. Here's what Paul says about that apostolic mission. Again, recounting his story of meeting with Jesus, he, he elaborates and says this. Jesus said to him, get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I've appeared to you, to point you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also things which I will appear to you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, wow, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. This is Jesus speaking to him. And, he spe and, and Paul's talking to this guy named King Agrippa, and he says, So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Wow. So Paul encounters Jesus. He realizes he's to be a witness for Jesus. Now, whether he's building tents or freed up, full time, doesn't matter. He's in, full deal. And he said, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. So here we go. Everybody hang with me just a few more minutes. Every person in this room is called to the heavenly vision. 
Every person in this room is called to relationship with Jesus. The, in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the end, he says, now go make disciples to, for, to all the nations. Go and preach the gospel to all the nations. Everybody has a calling to proclaim Jesus wherever he sends you. Everybody is. Acts 1.8, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Everybody is called to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be a witness for Jesus. You're made for it. Everybody. All right? Now, the only question is, where do I go and what do I do? The question isn't whether I'm called to be this kind of person. So, because that is the mission of Jesus and the desire of Jesus, Paul kind of took it up a notch and he said this in Romans uh, 15, uh, verse 10. He said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So not only are we all called, but one of the dreams of God, and I would say the apex of history of, uh, dream of God, is that all would hear and all would know. I call it there's an apostolic angst inside of Paul. And something's wrong and needs to be me right. Somebody doesn't know, and that's not fair. They have to know. Something that God's in the dream of heart of, uh, the, that's in the dream of God is not being fulfilled. I must be about my father's business. There was an apostolic angst inside of him to fulfill the destiny and purpose of God for his life and for his generation. And I want you to know, Matthew 24, 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Can I tell you that we are closer than ever in world history to this being accomplished? The nations are all but just a breath away from being reached. There are now only 320 groups of 10,000 people or more who have not ever had a gospel witness of Jesus or a church planted in there among their people. I was in a meeting two years ago, and the number was 480. I was in a meeting eight years before that, and the number was 680. We are rapidly coming to the place where everyone is going to have a chance to hear and to know. And I am telling you, everybody in this room, we can be a part of what I call the finishing generation. And it looks like it's going to happen with or without us either way. God's on the move. God's working all around the world, but we don't want to miss it. We want to get in on the action. So whatever you do in your life, whatever God has called you to do vocationally or whatever, your biggest question is, God, how may I glorify you the most and help the most amount of people? How may I be a witness for your glory? And God, if nobody will go to northern India, if nobody will go to these far reaches of Bhutan, Lord, if nobody will go to Oman and Qatar, if nobody is willing to risk their life, I want the apostolic angst to be the answer. I want to be that person. Because it's not right that every person on this planet doesn't have the opportunity to hear of Jesus and his love and his forgiveness and his rescuing power from sin and death. It's not right. Now I want to end with one last story because we're going to be talking all weekend about this. But what I want to end with is a story of love. Because no matter how much I fire you up for an apostolic vision or an apostolic mission, in the end, we have no gas or fuel for the journey uh, unless it's fueled by love. God so loved the world, right, that he gave Jesus. We love because he first loved us. Love is the power. That's, that's the fuel in the tank. And the way I look at the unengaged and unreached of the earth, those who've never heard, I, I look at it like this. If, if there's a family, like I have four kids, and honestly, I can say I love them all the same. I mean, they are, 
They are uh, just everything to Laura and I. We love them, and we're, we don't show favorites. We love all of them differently at times, but we love them all the same. But if we had one special needs kid in our family, we would need to give that special needs kids a little more attention, wouldn't we? And you know what? Even if the kids didn't understand, we'd, we'd pull them aside and say, we love you just as much as we love this one that has some extra need here, but it's just not right that they don't feel loved like you feel loved, and it just takes a little more for them to get what they need, right? And when I look at the world around us, we as North Americans, man, we have the gospel. We have Jesus. But there are people out there who are in poverty and they're broken and are, and are, and are in the nations of the earth and no, have no access to Jesus, and they're like, they're, they're still a part of the family of God, right, created in the image of God. They're just as important. God loves them just as much, but we've got to be able to and willing to show a little more attention to them if they're going to get what they need, right? Well, here's where this brings me to my last story. In the 1990s, we were in and out of Russia. I think I went 26 different times and planted churches, and, and it was just glorious. God was moving. And often I would be on the plane when we would get back to Moscow to, get, to back, go back to the States uh, with families that had adopted kids. And it was always just so powerful, and, and it was a little bit crazy on the plane too. Uh, but the orphanages were just heartbreaking. Um, they had kids that they wouldn't even touch or care for or love. I mean, just kids everywhere that just needed somebody to love them, just somebody to care for them. And, and the word had gotten out, and, and the laws were pretty liberal at that time for, to be able to, to adopt children. And so people were coming from all over North America, Europe, et cetera, to, to adopt kids. Personally, I ended up going to a handful of orphanages, and we did a lot of work in orphanages, but I get to the place where I couldn't go anymore. It was so heartbreaking. So I'm standing in a line, and there's a lady on a walker, looks to be maybe late 20s, maybe 30 years old, and she and I engage in conversation. I said, hey, what are you doing here? What are you doing in Russia? She was from South Carolina. And she said, um, well, I, I, we came to adopt a, a child. And I said, oh, that's so awesome. I said, tell me a little about your story. And she starts telling me her story, and uh, early on I can tell she's a believer, and she says, you know, I, I came to know the Lord as a young kid, and, and I had a dream in my heart. I always just wanted to be a wife and a mother. And she said, in my teen years, I found out I had muscular dystrophy. And all of a sudden, I, here I am on a walker, and, and I'm thinking, nobody's going to want me. Maybe I can just go be a teacher and care for kids. And so she, I went to university, and I, and I was doing well, and, and I met John. And he loved me. He loved me when... When I didn't think there would ever be a chance for me to get married, he, he loved me and he chose me. And we got married and we had big dreams to, to have kids and raise a family and to, no matter my disability, even if I didn't make it all the way through life, we would have the joy of having children and caring for them. I'd still see my dream. Thank you, God. And she said, then I found out that we couldn't have kids and it was my fault. It was my body that didn't work. And she said, so I'm devastated again, I, these false hopes, and here I am, and I can't, I can't have kids. And, and she said, then we saw these stories of these orphanages in Russia, and we said, that's it. That's God's will for our lives. We're going to go get a little baby in Russia. And she said, we went out to the orphanage. They flew out to Omsk, which is in the middle of the country. And she said, we went in, in, in this orphanage. We thought, well, we're going to get a, a newborn or, or, or maybe somebody less than a year old because they'll only know us then. It'll, it'll be just like we had our own baby. We go to the orphanage, and they're showing us different kids. And then she said, while we're there, 
I keep noticing a group of kids in the corner that are just playing by themselves are like five to ten years old. And I asked the lady, who are those kids? And she said, well, they either have behavior problems or a disability or something or another, but nobody's going to want them. We'll just take care of them the rest of their lives. And she looks over in the corner and she sees a little girl on a walker, a little seven-year-old girl. And she said, all of a sudden my heart just broke and I began to weep. And I said, God, you've been so gracious to me. Surely I can be a gift to her. She and John immediately, his heart was taken up with it as well. And, and they said, that's the one we choose. We want her. And she's telling me this story, you guys, and I am just crying and she's crying. And all of a sudden I look up and here comes her husband with a little seven-year-old girl on a walker. I'm just undone, just done. And after we got through passport control, they went one way, I went another, and I sat down, and I'm just, just undone by this deal. And God spoke to my heart so clearly, I love you so you can love. I've rescued you so that you can rescue others. I've healed you so you can be a healer. This is who you are. You're called to love. And so it is with all of us tonight. You're called to rescue. You're called to heal. You're called to love. And God wants to visit with us tonight. He wants us to take a few moments before him tonight and let him speak to our hearts. So let's all stand together. And everybody hang with me. This isn't the end, actually. This is the most important time of the whole night. This is where we let Jesus speak to our hearts. And so here's, here's what I want to encourage you to do. We got three responses here tonight. And it matters that you respond somehow. You can't just listen and walk out. You got to respond. Response number one is, I need an encounter with you, Lord Jesus. I need that glory of God. I need that encounter. I need to know your forgiveness. I need to know you're the way, the truth, and life. I need you. Not, not just for salvation, though. If you don't know Jesus, tonight's your night. But for those who do know Jesus, I want to believe that I can behold you and encounter you. Many of you need an encounter with Jesus tonight. Maybe secondly, you need a place of surrender. You got to just create a space as we've done hundreds of times where you just create a space and you just say, this is my altar of surrender. I'm done with my dreams, your dreams, oh God. If there's a dream in your heart, breathe it through me. I crucify again my desires and I say I'm yours. It's an altar of surrender. And maybe the third bucket is this. God, make me one of those healers for those who've never heard. Speak a people, speak a nation. I'm willing, God, to be a healer, a rescuer, a deliverer. I'm in. So here's how it's going to happen. We got space up here at the front. We got space in the aisles. But here's my point. If you do nothing, then you miss the moment. Now, it may be where you're right there. Hey, in my own chair, God's dealing with me and speaking to me, and I'm, I'm good. 
But for most of us, you got to step out and do something. You got to create an altar. You got to create a memorial place to meet with the living God. And so I'm going to pray. And as I pray, you just come. Whatever you need to do, that encounter with Jesus, that altar of surrender, or the healing balm of Jesus that you're ready to go to the nations and say, God, speak, create a space to meet with him right now. So Spirit of the living God, as we respond to you, I pray that the men and women, the moms and dads, the sons and daughters in this room would respond, would have holy altars tonight. Holy altars, God, to meet with you, to be yours, to be transformed by your grace tonight. You've called us to rescue. You've called us to heal. You've called us for love. Now let the love of God be poured out in this place like a river by the Holy Spirit. Again, we create altars before your throne room. And we trust you to speak. We trust you to lead. And we trust you to guide. And before we worship and just seal the word, man, you just start doing business with God. Wherever you are, I think the majority of us are here just to surrender, right? We're just creating a space that is not about us. We're in it for him and them. No longer me, Lord, him and them. Let it be. But for some people in this room, you don't know Jesus. He's a way, but not the way. And somehow your heart's been pierced tonight. I believe when I talked about that Hindu guy that didn't know that there was complete forgiveness in Jesus. If you need Jesus right now, I want to take you to him. I'm going to pray. and You can pray this prayer right after me. If you need Jesus, just close your eyes right now. I want to take you to him. You can pray this right after me in your heart. You can pray it out loud. If you need Jesus, pray something like this, Lord Jesus. Just pray it right after me. If you need him, tell him, Lord Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you made a way to the Father just for me. I'm yours, Jesus. I am yours right now. I give my heart to you. I give my life to you, no longer my own. I am yours. I am yours. While your eyes are closed and you're just focusing on this moment, if you just prayed that prayer with me, just boldly raise your hand. Who cares who's around? If you just boldly prayed that prayer, just raise your hand wherever you are. And Lord, I pray for anyone and everyone calling on your name right now. You said whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let salvation run like a river through the heart of every person calling on your name. Thank you, and I proclaim them free from the power of sin and death because of your promise and your grace. Now let's worship Jesus. Let's let's give our hearts to him. Let's let his love well up in us. We're created for him. Let's let him speak. Let's let his voice be abundant in this place. And let literally nations and peoples be changed and transformed because we've met with the living God tonight. Let's worship him together.